0: There's no sort of absolute measure of great insights. Great insights are dependent on why are we doing this to begin with?
1: Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in Nodes of Design. To help support our mission spread knowledge, we have a very special guest on today's episode. Let's welcome Steve Portigal, who is a design leader who helps companies to think and act strategically when innovating with user insights. Over the course of his career, he has interviewed hundreds of people helping companies compile the insights from their users. He is also the host of Dollars to Donut podcast where he interviews people who lead the user research in their organization. And he is also the author of two famous titles, Interviewing Users, How to Cover Uncompiling Insights and doe belt Dangers and Dead Batteries, The User Research Watch Stories. He has also been a keynote speaker on various occasions like CHI, IXDA, UIE, UX Hong Kong and many more. In this episode, Steve had shared great insights on user interviews and why do we do user interviews in design. We then discussed on frameworks for interview to gain great insights from user and also Steve shared few tips on active listening and note taking during the interview process. In the later part, we spoke on how do we combine all the insights and convey them into a narrative that can be spread across teams which could create an impact. We then concluded the show by Steve recommending us five do's and don'ts that designers and researchers must avoid while doing user interviews. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode and on every Friday, we release new episodes with different creative leaders from around the world to help you better understand different concepts related to design. So don't forget to tune in into Notes of Design every Friday. With that being said, happy designing everyone hi steve welcome to nodes of design it's pleasure hosting you today on our show
0: it's great to be here thank you for having me
1: so steve how's your day going
0: my day is going very well this is the first uh, conversation or anything that i'm doing today speaking with you so it's it's off to a great start
1: thank you so much steve so if you could give a brief about yourself to our partners out there
0: yeah i am a consultant my business is user research so i help companies learn about their users and make decisions about the kinds of products and services and features they're going to make. I also help companies uh, look at their own capabilities, their own teams, their own processes to help them build more mature and kind of robust user research practices. So doing research and kind of coaching organizations on how to do research.
1: Thank you so much, Steve. So what was your journey into design and research? How did you start? What are your tips to the beginners out there?
0: Well, I started in a time before we talked about user experience. I've just been doing this before the web uh, or around the time the web was being born was when I started my kind of graduate school and professional career. So I kind of found my way into a field that didn't really exist at the time, uh, which was Something that you know, if you're you know a beginner who's starting now, you have the advantage of a growing field, but a well-understood field with lots of resources, like the one that you're listening to now: books, um, courses, educational programs employers that know what you can do for them. Um, I don't mean to say it'll be, it's easy to get started because I think we all have to, what's the same now as it was for me in a different industry, a different era of the industry is that we all have to figure out how to talk about what it is that we do individually so that we're not a commodity, but what's our story. What is the combination of our interests, our education, our passions, our beliefs about how the world is and how we want to see it different and what we think we have to bring. And I think, so the tip that I would offer is that story has to be practiced. You've got to talk about yourself and what you believe and what you want to offer looking forward because people will want you to justify what you've done in the past. And if you don't have a lot of experience, you don't have a lot of experience. You can't fake your way around that. But what you can do is, um, you know, build confidence and clarity for yourself about what you're looking forward to and what you want to provide. And that it just takes practice to kind of get that story sorted out. Feedback, uh, you know, talking to friends, talking to prospective employers and just learning how to get that story kind of as as real and as sharp as it can be.
1: Thank you so much, Steve. And it's been an honor to host you and interview because you were the one whose books I had read and understood about insights and user interviews. So let's begin our episode with user interviews today. So what are user interviews and why do we do user interviews in design?
0: Yeah, when I think about interviews, um, you know, there are so many methods, look up any document about, you know, what are, what do we do in, in user research? And there's so many different methods. It can be overwhelming. I have sort of a more broad definition of what the interviews are and of course why we're doing them i think interviews is kind of a container that can hold a lot of different kinds of things that we might do so we're asking questions we're also observing we're also showing people things uh a very many different things that we can show people or ask them to complete tasks and activities so all of that stuff to me is 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 an interview um a key part for me that Is not possible, at least today as we're having this recording uh, in most parts of the world anyway, is that, you know, we go to uh, we go to the context where that person is and see what their world is, what they're doing. Done so much in the last year of of a pandemic of doing research remotely remotely. you know, I'm speaking about where I live and kind of what the context here is. I know there's a lot of variation over the around the world, but in general, we're all facing a pandemic of one form or another. So it's forcing us to spend time over the internet with everyone, friends, family, colleagues, but also research participants. But I think just that that mindset of being in their context is really is really important, as opposed to, hey, you come to me and Tell me what you think. I'm going to come to you and learn what your world is about. Uh, And, you know, in doing interviews, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot been written and I've written books about it as many others have, but at a really high level, at a really high level, we are asking people about what it is they're doing. How, how do you go through about this task? What do you do first? What do you do next? What's easy? What's hard? We ask them to explain what they do. The really cool thing about interviews maybe versus other kinds of user research methods is that if you ask somebody to describe what they're doing, they will tell you, maybe just indirectly, but they'll tell you what does it mean, how they feel about it, what's working, what's successful, what they're anxious about they will give you all that sort of extra context in the way that they tell you things. So that's a benefit of doing the interviews is you get all this other data and it's actually really important. And all you have to do is, is listen for it. Uh, and then, you know, a couple of other pieces, you know, cause your question is good. Why are we doing this? Um, there's a really important step, which is that we have to make some sense out of this information. We have to, infer we have to interpret we have to analyze and synthesize and ultimately we come up with our own point of view about what the patterns are it's not simply taking quotes from people about i like a no i like b and then tallying up those quotes it really is a new perspective that we have created by that interpretation and that that is actually the value of of this kinds of research And I think sometimes people feel like, well, you know, that's subjective and inconsistent. uh, But if we have data, if we have, you know, uh, survey data or log data, well, that is mathematical and that's proof and that's true. Um, But but any good quantitative person, a data scientist, whoever, they are really great at interpreting Uh, quantitative data. There's no sort of data is not truth. It requires someone to interpret and make sense and find out what is relevant and what does this mean for us. So qualitative research, interviewing users, it's exactly the same. There's a process for making sense of this information that is based on what is it that we are trying to do as as a team. Uh, and then the third part of it, and again, your question is good. Why are we doing this? The third part is that we apply what we've learned in the research to some business problem or some design problem. We do something with it. We ask questions about, well, so what? Um, you know, we create something new or we create directions or opportunities for something new that come out of what the research revealed um and you know i think maybe this is more in the past than in the present i don't know there's there's always that concern that you do research you produce some documentation of the research and that's kind of where it ends and then that's a problem uh but if you think about the whole journey of doing the research is to uh facilitate or help or recommend take it to the state where we know what to do next um then i think that is sort of Again, I like how you asked it. Why are we doing user interviews and in design? It's to help make decisions about kind of what to do next.
1: Thank you so much, Steve. So what is a framework you suggest for interviews to gain great insight from all these users?
0: It starts before you do the interviews, of course, I guess, of course. Um, and that's really looking at, yeah, why are we doing this? What are we doing and why? Um, and I think there's a bunch of interlocking questions or topics that you have to address Uh, and the first one is what's the business problem or the goal or the objective or the challenge and this is about us right what is what is our team or our company faced with and then the second piece is the research question the research question is about them the users the customers the participants what are we seeking to learn from them Uh, and so, I mean, what I find is, you know, the intention to do interviews can come out of either of those, right? People can say, Hey, we, you know, are not sure about how we're going to serve this market or we need to make a new version of our product because the technology is going obsolete or those are important. Those are the, that's about the business, right? And then the research is what we want to learn to do that. So. You know, we want to understand how, where people are finding the most value in our product today so that we can make changes in our product in the future. So that's kind of a combination. Here's the business problem. Here's the research question. Um, And that's different, of course, than the research method. Uh, And sometimes people start with the research method. We have to um, uh, create a diary study where we're going to have people use our product for a week and report back on how they use it. So you may find yourself kind of given that assignment, like here's the method we want you to use. Well, then you have to ask why, what do we want to learn from that method? What's our research question and what are we going to do with that information? So I think keeping all these things in mind, right? The business problem, the research question, the research method, and and asking questions when you're planning to do research About all of those and making sure that they're all in alignment, that you choose the right method that gets at the question that's going to solve the business problem. Um, So, I think like the framework for the interviews for me is really, I guess, I want to emphasize in this conversation the planning that goes into why are we even doing this to begin with? Because, you know, you're asking about gaining great insights. Well, there's no sort of absolute measure of great insights, great insights are dependent on. Why are we doing this to begin with? So the more that we can be clear and in alignment, uh, and I don't mean that this is trivial. I think it actually takes a certain amount of work and negotiation and having the right people in the room to discuss this. Um, But that heads you right into the right direction, right? To make sure that the insights you're getting are relevant to what your organization is faced with.
1: Thank you so much, Steve. So we got this question from a lot of listeners out there, which is in interviews note-taking and active listening to the users is something like a prime task. So any advice or tips on how to structure these both?
0: I think opinions will vary about this. Uh, I know lots of researchers pride themselves on their note-taking ability. So I'm gonna say something maybe opposite of that, which is I wanna recommend not taking notes. And, I, you know, I think the question kind of captures it, right? Active listening and note-taking are competing with each other. Well, if that's true, and I agree that it's true, I would say active listening should be your priority. Um, you know, we can record things to go back to them later and capture what was said. Um, so that, that's, and I think there's a difference between note-taking as I want to capture everything and of course, if you ever try to do that, you realize you cannot keep up. Even if you're only note taking, you still can't type or write fast enough, given how fast people speak and and kind of how fast our brains work. Um, and you actually need the recording because you want to go back and see. Wait, did they say fourteen or forty? You know what? What I didn't. I didn't, I, I want to make sure I heard the right thing and that I understood uh, because people speak right. They say. Well, if this happens, then that is what I'm gonna do. And you might not know what this is and what that is. And so you got to go back a couple of times because what you heard may be wrong. So that's one type of note-taking. And, and you your brain and your hands are not fast enough to do it. There is another kind of note-taking, which is processing the experience, processing the information, you know, drawing little diagrams, making a little sketch of like what the question is. That's you processing you are being that's that is active listening right but you're not documenting you're processing that kind of note-taking I think is super important and everyone has kind of a different style there the last tip I'll offer here is that um, note-taking if you want to do sort of transcription kind of note-taking you still need the recording for all the reasons I've said um, but this is something that a second interviewer can do so you focus on the act of listening. Someone is next to you. They are, you know, clackety clack typing away, you know, hopefully not too loud, but they are kind of taking a first level capture of what the interview is. That's a great thing for them to do. Um, and, you know, they're focused on that. You're focused on listening. And now everybody gets to kind of do one prime task.
1: Thank you so much, Steve. That was a wonderful advice. So what are the five things that a researcher must avoid while doing these user interviews? I'm,
0: I'm going to try to flip it around. I'm going to answer your question, but I want to flip it around to a little bit more on like what you should do uh, as opposed to what you should not do. But it's, it's the same thing. Right. So I mean, so five things. So I may have more than five. Let's see. First thing is... Um, check your worldview at the door. is kind of the phrase that, that I use. Like you have thoughts about this problem, about this person, about this process, about your product. Of course you do. You're supposed to, um, but you want to make the interview itself just be about that person and their, their experience. And so the more that you're holding on to what you think and what you expect, the more you bring that into the interview and that, That introduces bias that that changes your ability to kind of hear certain things. So even as kind of a tip, I think you can just say to yourself, all right, you know, for the next, uh, you know, 45 minutes, I'm going to talk to uh, Joanna. I'm just going to be here to think about Joanna and what she's doing. Like, give yourself a little transitional moment where you say, like, okay." This is where I'm going to be right now. And sort of set the things that you're carrying around aside. The, uh, the corollary to that, kind of what goes with that, I think is um, it's kind of telling yourself to embrace how other people see the world. And and I really mean the word embrace, right? It's, it's, you know, embrace is reaching out for somebody and kind of bringing them very close to you. We might say like, oh, be tolerant of other people's points of view about your product or be willing to accept it. But I really think it's more passionate and more deliberate than that. Um, But this also shows up in the tactics that we use. So thinking about um, asking a question that you think you know the answer to. Um, right. Like, I mean, uh, you know, while you and I are sitting here and talking, I can see the room that you're in over zoom. Um, so I might say, and, and to me, your wall looks blue. And so, but as a researcher, I want to be able this is a silly example, but bear with me as a researcher, I want to be able to say to you, what color is your wall and not be, and and feel okay with that. Like, that's a good question to ask. Because I ask you what color is your wall, what you might say is, "Oh, Steve, my wall is aquamarine, um, and it's the color of the ocean, uh, and I paint my walls blue here because the ocean is you know really important to my family and this is my family home. You know, I decided your wall is blue, but first of all, that's wrong because it's not blue, it's aquamarine because I want to embrace how you see the world, and if I don't ask that question, then I don't get that insight about you know, your relationship to the ocean and, and, and sort of the symbolism and the meaning for you. Uh, again, it's a silly example, but you're going to come across this so many times when you think you know what the person is going to say and you gotta got to find a way to be okay with asking that Anyway, and I don't mean that every time you ask a question like that, you're going to get this big insight about you know the ocean and families. Like you don't know, but you have to be willing to do that. And so that is really trying to embrace this other person's experience and their view of the world. I think that's two. Third thing I would emphasize is uh, is building rapport, uh, which seems a little bit elusive, but rapport is it's the energy that the two people who are talking create together. That they both feel good about the conversation, and and maybe if you're new to research, you feel like um, I'm placing a burden on you. I am uh, asking you for something, but actually, this great conversation you're going to have is going to be wonderful for both both parties. So the way people who are new to research think that they should build a rapport to make this connection between people is to keep telling their participants how their experience is like the participants experience so someone says um, oh I've just uh, uh I've started watching Netflix every night after dinner and I've had watch a new series every week and you're the interviewer and you're thinking like yeah I do I do that too I really want to encourage you not to say anything the 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 instinct I think is to feel like yeah me too I do that too and, and that you'll be sort of telling the participant that hey we're the same like i'm here with you and i have the same experience that you do the point of the rapport is a, it's is to center the other person so if they say i watch netflix after dinner every night you could say what are some programs that you've watched what are some things that you recommend uh, what does that bring like just ask another question about them it's about them it's about them it's about them it's about them and so that that actually builds the rapport uh this is not hanging out with someone that you want to make friends with it's it's doing something to learn about this person so you you make them very important and keep kind of following up on their experience and then that creates this great that leads to more sharing more detail more kind of comfort on their part another thing we're going for five i think here's number four is to really focus on lit- Listening, um, And we always think, you know, especially when we're brought up as kids, uh, you know, that listening is just about, you know, mouth shut, ears open. And I like we already had a question about active listening, right? Active listening is such a great description of what we're doing here. It's the things that you say show that you're listening. So, you know, when you do interviews, you prepare a bunch of questions, but actually the way you conduct the interview, uh, you know, for user research, we're talking about user research specifically, these kinds of interactions, Uh, is that you ask a follow-up question Uh, that's so you can ask an initial question like I asked you about your wall or I asked you about Netflix and then I'm going to ask another question another question another question that is that's listening I heard what you said I'm interested and I want to know more about it and then what goes with that is you have to change topics once in a while just tell them that you're changing topics right so you can say Uh, This is great. I want to move on to something different, or I want to go back to something that you said before. So just giving them those transition phrases uh, tells the person you're talking to that you're listening. Uh, And so these all contribute to kind of the comfort and the engagement you have with this other person. It means that they're just more willing to share more kind of rich information with you. And the last one uh, out of five, and it kind of relates to the notion of listening. And this is about, this is in the format that you asked. Here's a thing not to do. So the thing not to do is putting answers in the question. Um, So uh, you mentioned that you're you're watching Netflix. What are you watching on Netflix? Are you watching uh, Bridgerton or The Queen's Gambit or uh, The Walking Dead season two? I don't know if those are all on Netflix where any of us live, but whatever. So in that example, I start suggesting possible responses. But the better question is just to say, what are you watching on Netflix? Right? The person is quite capable of answering the question um and sometimes we feel nervous asking the question so we try to help them as much as possible by giving you know possible answers to kind of show them that we're really ready for them to answer the question but you have much more success if you ask the shorter simpler question and the reason that this is important is that uh people that you interview want to do a good job for you they're trying so hard to do a good job and you have all this power and so when you start telling them in the question what a possible answer is you're reinforcing for them that they should give you back one of those answers as opposed to their answer um, it's harder and the more that you do this the more the person gets the subconscious signal that oh here's what Steve wants me to tell him so you really it, you can make so much of a difference in the interview if you don't do these things I think that's five those are my five kind of Things to do, things not to do.
1: Thank you so much, Steve. It was really wonderful and very insightful. How could we combine all these insights and convey them into a narrative that can be spread across teams, which can create an impact across the organization?
0: And I think the question, I like the questions we're talking about combining insights. And I think there's a, an important point here, kind of spoke about it indirectly earlier. We're not simply tabulating the quotes from people. We are interpreting them. Um, this is a time-consuming part of the process. It, it's a time-consuming part of the process to gather all this information, interpret it, and make sense of it. Um, and then you're asking kind of about the second part of it: is how do we, how do we engage with the rest of the organization? Uh, and I, I think about a conversation I had years ago with Greg Bernstein, who was at Mailchimp. Uh, he was on my podcast a while back. He's not at Mailchimp anymore. But he described uh, um, an approach they took at MailChimp was that every time they do research, they create three separate outputs. We could call them deliverables, but I almost want to call them outputs uh, in order to do what you're talking about. So every study, every research effort became a uh, email with, let's say, 10 bullet points. It also became a... PowerPoint or Keynote or Google Slides report. Uh, And then it became an archive of all the data, all the spreadsheets, all the interviews, all the transcripts, all the photographs. And so they, in order to, exactly what you're talking about, create impact across teams, they had multiple touch points. So the email could be distributed to whatever, this mailing list or a weekly newsletter or posted on a Slack Uh, it's not it's not a lot of effort to consume that Um, and maybe for some people those highlights those bullets are sufficient Uh, but for other people it might serve to create some interest right create I want to know more so then they might take their report, their google slides report and have Friday happy hour or a Tuesday lunch and learn, or, you know, some meeting where people can come together and experience them talking through what they've learned, uh, ask questions, discuss, um, and people that want to know a lot more can go back into that data and see, well, what else? Did anyone talk about this feature? Did anyone talk about this product? I don't think those are like the magic three things but I think a key is to create outputs that can be experienced in different ways. So I think this is very specific to how MailChimp worked and how they could communicate and how you could get people's attention. Um, so I'm really interested in, yeah, creating multiple facets that are required, different levels of detail uh, that suits different teams. And, you know, and maybe I've, I mean, I've heard teams talk about this, where they they as they're going through putting together what their research reveals, they are thinking about, oh, this group over here with this name, this is going to be interesting for them. This group over here for this team, this is going to be interesting for them. So they have a lot of awareness and I guess some empathy for those colleagues. And they are almost like hand delivering. And that could be a message on Slack. Hey, we did this research and we found this one thing paste a sentence paste a paragraph in or it could be an email or it could be hey can we talk for five minutes I want to share this thing um so thinking about you know you the researcher thinking about who you can give information to um and really just kind of just sharing with them in almost like little chunks here and there um so I think and I think the point here is to have multiple approaches in sharing and whether it's a full narrative or kind of just elements, anecdotes, um, you know, really working hard at uh, having multiple outputs to support multiple consumers of your of your work. To, to, again, to drive the impact that you're asking about.
1: Thank you so much, Steve. So could you please share with us how does your typical day look like or any interesting stories that you want to share?
0: Well, my day, <laughs> I mean, we're in a period of time when we're talking where there's a lot of sort of consistency to the day. And, uh, I you know, I think what's what's been helpful for me in the pandemic in terms of managing my day is creating a more explicit boundary between, um Workday and personal day and workdays and weekends. I know for some people, the opposite has happened. I'll say I've like kind of got a sort of a schedule, uh, if you will, where I want to focus on these things. But what work looks like every day is is different You know, some days I'm doing things like we're doing today, like having a a conversation about research. Sometimes I'm talking with leaders about uh, like prospective clients. I mean, we could call that business development. Here's tell me about your situation. I'll tell you about what work I do. Let's see how we can, uh, you know, explore working together. Sometimes I'm teaching classes. Sometimes I'm writing, like trying to organize information to either share back with a client or maybe publish once in a while um, that time the sort of heads down focused concentrating time is harder and harder for me. And I don't think I'm unique. Some of it is just uh, spending too much time on Twitter and kind of training myself to be distracted. Um, some of it is just the low level or high level anxiety of the, you know, the challenges of, of what the world we're in is like right now. And again, it's different for everybody, but for me, that's kind of how I feel about it. And, you know, I have kind of a, the day starts in different ways, but I have kind of a, there's a, a ritual to end the day, which is tied to our dog's, who we feed at the same time every day and they know when that time is getting close and they get very excited and they come and kind of sit and look at me or jump around. And so it's a, it's helpful to have kind of an ending ritual, which is, you know, dogs get excited. I feed them. We go out for a dog walk and then, you know, we have the dinner for the humans uh, in the house. So um, yeah, that it happens at the the same time every day. And, uh, there's, I think some comfort in that structure, but what I would be working on is just different every single day at that time. I'll just throw one more thing in there too. Um, this is more about a weekly cadence than a daily cadence, but, um, I was invited to join a, a coaching circle. So it's just other professionals that do different things. Um, I think almost all of us are self-employed so it kind of uh, that's that's kind of what the focus is but we meet up every week and we talk about we give each other advice and ask each other questions and kind of support each other um so i don't know if coaching i think it's called a coaching circle more generally that's what this group calls it so that's that's probably the only thing that happens every week that's the same thing everything else is like completely just different from week to week so it's nice to have a few consistent things to anchor my life around and then have lots of uh, improvisation and flexibility kind of around
1: that. Thank you so much, Steve. So we'll conclude this show by you recommending three favorite books of yours and also people who inspire you the most in this space. I have
0: three books here um, and I'll, I'll, I'll list them and then tell you a little bit about each of them. The first one is called The Secret Life of Groceries uh and it's by benjamin lore definitely an american focused book in fact the subtitle is the dark miracle of the american supermarket it's um it's kind of an ethnography of everything about how americans get food from the grocery store and uh the author has these very different chapters some are sort of journalistic so he looks at grocery chains that changed how we, what kind of food we buy. Like there's some high level, uh, high end brands in the United States and and other places. Uh, And he examines kind of the, the founders of those companies and their businesses. But he also looks at trucking, which is a big part of the infrastructure, how everything gets from place to place. And he travels with a truck driver uh, around the United States, uh, and learns kind of about how food, food works that way. So that's the secret life of groceries. Lots, lots more in that book. Um, there's a book from 2011 by, uh, this filmmaker and artist, Miranda July, and it's called, it chooses you. And it's also a book about ethnographic research, which isn't really explicitly about that, but it's, so she's this artist who's supposed to be writing a screenplay and is just stuck. She doesn't know what to do. Um, so she comes up with another project for herself. And so she finds this uh, this free classified newspaper that, that uh, I don't think they have it anymore, but it used to be in like grocery stores even. And it would be just things that people were selling, like very inexpensive, just sort of often weird things. And she would she would buy those things, but she also would call up the person and go and interview them like do a do kind of a a qualitative interview with this person about their life and this object and have them show her things. And, and they were just really, they're just sort of fantastical. She meets all these interesting people who are kind of weird and wonderful. And, you know, she just tells these amazing stories about kind of what happened. So just, it, it made me feel both hopeful about people and kind of cynical about people at the same time which i think is a very real uh, a real way of kind of being um so i, I like that book for a lot uh, a lot of a lot of reasons and the last one's maybe a little more close to the work that we do this is a book by kim irwin and it's called communicating the new um and it kind of goes back to your question before about um you know delivering these insights in a way that, you know, has impact, creates a narrative. The book looks at the kind of research that we're doing in, you know, design, innovation work. We're trying to influence an organization in a different way than maybe traditionally has been done. It's all about new stuff. So we need some approaches and methods for delivering that. Um, And so she has, you know, just a long list of sort of different kinds of um, different kinds of examples of ways to deliver stuff that are very creative. They're very much, you know, I gave some examples earlier, but they're pretty straightforward. So this is this is really if you want to provoke yourself to think about yeah, how could I deliver research or recommendations or design ideas uh, to provoke new thinking? It's a book that really examines that. I think you also were asking about a person in the field that inspires me. I'm going to suggest uh, Chris Avore. Uh, He's someone who's done many different things. But one of the things he did was create the first uh, design research maturity model which is uh, something that takes a step back and it looks at the organization overall and how the practice of user research takes place in that organization. And, you know, that's where my my own work is much more focused now. So part of that is looking at the individual skills of people on the team. But there's a lot of other aspects to having a successful practice inside a company You know, my own podcast that I mentioned before, uh, Dollars to Donuts, right? That focuses on that to a certain extent. Uh, What is the organization doing, not what are the researchers doing? But I, I think Chris here deserves a lot of credit for putting out that very first model that I'd ever seen anyway, something that he kind of gave to the field for us to kind of consider, hey, where are our teams at? Where can we be developing? Uh, so, I, you know, I use that model. I reference it all the time. Um, and, and that came from Chris Avore. So I'm, I'm certainly inspired and, and grateful to him for that.
1: Thank you so much, Steve, for sharing all these wonderful insights with us. We're looking forward to host you again in our upcoming episodes. Thanks for your time.
0: Thank you so much. Great to chat with you.